listen to them. Children of the night, what music they make. They're coming to get you, Barbara. They're here. Ah. Welcome to my nightmare. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Kill you all. We don't know what death is. We belong dead. Here's Johnny. <laughs> I shot him six times. On to your butt. Free for your life. Into <laughs> a new world of parts and monsters. everybody and a very pleasant day to you wherever you may be. My name is Robert and welcome to Pods and Monsters. With me as always is Cynthia. How are you, Cynthia? Okay, been watching a lot of supermarket sweeps. Yeah, supermarket sweep. It's great. Well, I don't know if you noticed in the background, but there was an invisible person. (laughs) (laughs) Is that how you're going to tie it into this? I guess. So today for Pods and Monsters, we are going back to the Universal movies of the 1940s, and we are on another Invisible Man sequel, and this one is called The Invisible Agent. Who is this terrifying Phantom Commando? What is his amazing mission? See The Invisible Agent, suggested by H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, starring Ilona Massey and John Hall, with Peter Lorre, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bromberg, Albert Bosserman in the most amazing story of our time. I feel like we're stuck in the 19... We're only in 1942. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of monster movies around this time. It's crazy. Yeah. I don't think this is a monster movie. It's not really a monster movie, but it's one of the Invisible Man movies. It ties into the original Invisible Man. Yes. Had you heard of this movie before? No. The Invisible Man sequels are the Universal movies I know the least, but I've I've probably seen this one once or twice before. Mm -hmm. So I I always like watching these again because it's like seeing Universal movies for the first time again because I don't remember them very well. Yeah. So we watched The Invisible Agent from 1942, and uh, why don't we go over what happened? The Invisible Agent. So we get our mirror ball universal logo. Again, my favorite logo. Yes. And uh, we have our title over a cloudy city skyline. And we have somewhat of dramatic but peppy music. Adventurous, maybe. Yeah, it's uh, another great theme by Hans J. Salter, who did most of the 1940s universal horror movies. And this is his classic uh, Invisible Man theme. Yes. We see three men who are standing, well, I guess it's more than three men, but we see some men standing outside of a printer's window. And it says that it's Frank... Raymond. It says Frank Raymond Printer, and it's his storefront window. The men are very much not from the United States, but it is a little difficult to tell where they're from. Later on, we find out uh, one of them with an English accent is German, and the other one who is very much not Japanese? I don't know. He's really German, I believe. A German Jew. In In, real life? In real life. He plays a Japanese man. Yeah. So here are our bad guys. It's Sir Cedric Hardwick, who is the German with the English accent, Mm -hmm. and Peter Lorre as the Japanese Baron Akito. Yes. I only know by his name being Akito... That's what gave me the hint initially that he became that he was playing a Japanese character. And the, and another big reason why I thought he was German is because he is so reminiscent to the German character in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. He's basically doing a Peter <gasps> Lorre impression. Is. Oh my gosh, he totally is. Yeah, so he looks What's like, that guy's name? 
Uh, Tof, I, Toft. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that. To- Toth, I think. Something like that. Yeah, it's his little hand. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really neat to see these legends of horror, Sir Cedric Hardwick and Peter Lorre together. Yeah. Especially Peter Lorre. He's right up there with Vincent Price and, yeah. and you know, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. He's one of the classic horror guys. This happens to be his only universal horror movie. Oh, okay. I wish they put him to more use and, and got him into some other stuff he's because a great he's actor. really great. Um, I will say, when we find out his name, which is not until almost the end of the movie, we mm. find out that he's Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think they, they mentioned his name earlier really? in, in the movie. So I put two and two together and I was thinking he must be Japanese because Aikido sounds Japanese. Of course. But then I you don't really, you, yeah, you really know for sure by the end. Yeah. But. Okay. Well, I was like, that's some reveal. Anywho, they go inside and they pretty much put on a little act saying that they're trying to purchase some uh, personalized stationery from our good friend Frank. The store attendant we come to find out is actually Frank Griffin, who is uh, going by an alternate name. Uh, he's hiding and he's going by Frank Raymond. These men have been looking for him for years, and he is the grandson of the man. Was his, what was his first name? Was it also Frank? Well, in this, yeah, they say he is the grandson of the inventor of the visibility drug, Frank Griffin. Okay. So there's some questions I have about this, because Why? It, in the original Invisible Man, his name was Jack Griffin. Uh-huh. Who invented the drug? The ja- the the Frank is silent. <laughs> but in The Invisible Man Returns, Jack Griffin's brother's name is Frank, who alternated the drug for Vincent Price, so he doesn't go you know as mad as mm-hmm. Jack Griffin did. Mm-hmm. And there's also some kind of confusion as to how he's related to the because remember they say when they find Frank Raymond or Frank Griffin, uh, Sir Cedric Hardwick says something like. Uh, you know, was it your uncle or your brother? And and Peter Lorre says, it was his grandfather. And uh, I trust Peter Lorre. All we want to buy is your father's formula. Or was it your uncle who discovered it? No, no, no. It was his grandfather, Frank Griffin. Yes, yes, of course. Frank Griffin Sr. If it was his <laughs> grandfather, is his grandfather Jack Griffin or Frank Griffin? They say Frank Griffin, but could they possibly mean... I would think if if Frank Griffin is the one who was able to modify it, yeah. he doesn't go insane in this movie. He gets a little cheeky, but he's not like bonkers yeah. like the other two were. So why not? Yeah. Right. Well, so I, whatever. I, either way, he's a Griffin. There's so many continuity errors or issues with these Universal movies yeah. that I, I don't. You can't tell if they're talking about the original Invisible Man or his brother. <laughs> they, well, I mean, also when they came out, the likelihood of people remembering, I mean, it's not even that many years between these movies. But Well, the original Invisible Man would have been nine years before. Oh, okay. So am I going to remember someone's name from the movie I saw like one time? I don't know. Anywho, it's fine. Whatever. He's a griffin. He says that he does not know what they're talking about and... They tell him all about the invisibility drug. Uh, They want it by any means. And so they start searching and tearing apart the shop. These men I put down are German and they come with a bunch of muscle. Um, I guess it's the Gestapo that come with them Mm -hmm. and um, they aren't able to find anything. Frank is not complying with anything and they rough him up a little bit. Yeah, I like how he says, uh, oh, typical German philosophy. Typical German philosophy. Precisely. German thinking is the clearest in the world. Peter Lorre, or what's his name again? Akito. Akito. I said that he's being really super creepy and cryptic in the corner. Yeah, he's great here. All this stuff is going on, but Peter Lorre is at a different level than... Uh, everyone else where yeah. he, he sort of is more knowledgeable he's patient patient the the germans are kind of bumbling in this movie mm-hmm. and he's and more calculating he's more calculating and more sinister i guess oh very much so um he's at a paper cutter and a paper press and he's uh kind of fiddling around with that and then he pretty much goes to torture frank for information using this and threatening to cut off his fingers this is really a very useful machine. You know, if a person weren't careful, it uh, 
could cut off his fingers or, or his whole hand. Yeah, they put his hand in the paper cutter, and they're teasing him with it until he finally gives in. Yep. I told you it was a very useful little machine. Frank does say that he won't tell them, but then eventually he's like, okay, let me show you where it is. And he pulls out this drawer that has like a false bottom to it, and um, he actually ends up using that to hit some of the Gestapo. Um, yeah, he... Uh, and escape. Yeah, he kind of lifts it up and hits one of them in the face with it. And I guess the box hits the light above because all the lights go off. Yeah. And he makes his escape that way. And then the Germans and Aikido uh, run away in fear of getting caught. Yep. He ends up going to the authorities and it seems like it's some sort of like government official. And they ask him if he would be willing to give the drug to the United States uh, military. And he says that he's destroyed it. And there isn't a great enough reason to ever use it. There will never be a big enough American reason, emergency, anything critical enough for um, him to ever let them use this drug. And then we get newspaper clippings and flashes of Pearl Harbor and the U.S. entering the war. Yeah. So something big enough has happened. I guess so. Frank decides to turn over the drug, but the condition is that he's the only person that can use it just because he doesn't fully know what to expect for other people to use it. Um, So he is coming with, if we're going to use this drug that doesn't get used, that's totally killed my family. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to use it. And the government is like, you are not equipped to do any of these things. You are not trained in anything that we need from you. Yeah. But they just are grateful that he's willing to give them anything. So yes. the head general or whatever you want to call him uh, says they'll work something out. So, Yep. Gentlemen, I move to assign the job to Mr. Raymond. They want him to collect information and they need him to go into Germany to do it. The mission is to collect information on when Germany will attack the United States. Yes. because. Japan already has. Mm -hmm. They end up sending him to England, where he flies into Berlin from there. Yeah, there's some nice model shots of this uh, airplane flying. It's so good. He is in a plane, and he's getting ready to parachute into Berlin. While he's on there, he he injects himself before jumping out. And Mm -hmm. as he is injecting himself with the drug, the plane is spotted from the Germans on the ground, and they start shooting at the plane. He's told that he's supposed to go meet a man named Arnold, and he has an address to where to go meet this gentleman. So I really like this transition that we get. He's taken the drug, and he jumps out of the plane, and as he's falling, the Germans are spotting him, and we get this really great, like, I want to, it's almost like a, a Benny Hill kind of comedy where we get these uh, German troops looking up at him through binoculars and whatever else. And they're trying to shoot him or they're preparing to go ambush him. And as he's falling, he's starting to disappear in front of their eyes. So there's confusion. And every time they look up, there's less and less. And I really enjoy that little bit of comedy to it and the transition and the effect of him disappearing while he's sitting in this little parachute thing and he's falling to earth yeah he becomes completely invisible as he's falling but if he's still wearing clothes it doesn't matter if he's invisible so as he's falling he's also undressing himself Mm -hmm. so they just see clothes falling off from the sky (laughs) yeah it's it's a really great really great little transition that we get there and so we, we see a bunch of confused Nazis at this point. Uh, the parachute lands on a barn and he slides off and goes inside. And there's some soldiers there that are going to go meet meet him. And they go inside to the barn. They can't find him. He just throws some hay on them. and But they search everywhere and can't find him. And their commander shows up and they're finding his clothes and everything else. And there's just confusion. One of them says he dissolved into the air. And the commander does not believe him and yeah. sends a message to order a search party. Yeah, and they find his shoes somewhere. And, you know, he says something to the effect of, well, he can't get very far without his shoes. He can't go far without his shoes. Yeah, he's trying to rationalize all of these things. He sends a messenger who drives away with the message for the search party. And our good friend Frank hops into this Jeep with this guy and knocks him out a little ways down and then steals the car. Yes, um, now you got an invisible man driving a car. Yeah. 
he drives to Berlin to meet Arnold at his shop. And Arnold is a carpenter. He makes coffins and who knows what else, but we see some coffins in there. Do you remember what Frank's code is? No. When he enters the shop... Something about an empire coffin? I want to order a coffin. Empire style. It reminds me of In-N-Out. Oh, gosh. Mm, Yeah. Animal style. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So Arnold is very astonished that the drug actually works and is very impressed. Frank is cold and asks for some coffee. And they end up having a little conversation here. So this Arnold guy, he's uh, an American ally uh, who's German, um, living in Germany. And, yeah, he has a way to contact America and... uh, Yes. Yeah. Well, he has a way to contact the British. Oh, the British. Yes. Arnold ends up telling him that he needs to meet Maria, who is not there. She's at a different location, and she will be able to help him and get them the information that Mm -hmm. he needs. They figure that he needs to get to that place, and across the street, there is a cab company. So Frank ends up calling that cab company to go to the address where Maria lives, So I really like how this played out because I thought he was just going to steal the cab. But what he did was he calls the cab and says that it needs to drive to this location. And he hops into the cab as the cab driver is going to go drive to Maria's. Yeah. I thought that was very clever. Yeah. uh, He's pretending to already be located at Maria's and Mm -hmm. he's calling a cab so he could get picked up to be brought somewhere. So the cab, he gets to the cab as it drives over, as you said. Yep. And, uh, then when the guy says you called for a cab, they say, I don't know what you're talking about. The funny thing about this is there's no language barriers in this movie. If this were real life, lots of the characters would only be speaking German and he wouldn't have be able Correct. to contact uh, yeah. this cab driver so easily. But. Yeah, but this is a movie. Yeah. So, so yeah, so once the taxi gets there, he's able to sneak into the house and he sneaks in to meet with Maria. Played uh, by Alona Massey. So beautiful woman. Do you remember what Frank does when he first sees her? No. Remember, she doesn't know anyone's there, but all she hears is a wolf whistle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I did put that because that does come back later on. It startles her and they start communicating with each other and, um, of course, immediately go into flirty banter. Yeah. He's very um, forward, very forward, but she's just as forward, so whatever. He smokes and... You can um, kind of see his outlines. Yes. He reveals that he is invisible. She's put off... But he drops in, uh, there's like the passcode that they need. I was sent here in Empire style. Empire style? And uh, she too is impressed by his invisibility. She then says that actually he's shown up at a very inopportune time, that she's expecting company for dinner. And he is so cold and grimy that he needs to go take a bath. (laughs) Which is kind of dumb, but whatever. Well, I think they just threw that in there because... You to get, get, to to get some, the great invisible man yeah, effects. Yeah, of him soaping up in the bathtub and stuff. Yeah, it's a really neat effect uh, because, you know, he puts the soap on his arms and legs. And so that's all you see are the soapy mm-hmm. areas. Yeah. And I like that he's humming while he's taking a bath. So we got, yeah, we got a little bit of his bath scene. They plan that he'll stay for dinner and he'll overhear what her meeting is with the quote unquote secret police, which is the Gestapo um, and Nazi police or something. I like (laughs) when she goes to enter the room, um, the common room where she entertains outside of her bedroom, she swings the door real wide so that he can (laughs) rush through the door (laughs) as she goes in. I thought that was really funny. Well, uh, she kind of didn't open it enough or she was about to close it. And then he kind of bumped into her as (laughs) as he went in. And yeah, you laughed out loud during that part. He did. I just enjoy that very much. Here we meet a, a man named Carl who is an officer in the Gestapo. And also you'll notice that there is a framed picture of Sir Cedric Hardwick. That's what I was not about the mantle. to say. No, yeah. okay. So we know that she's connected to this man in some way. At first I thought maybe it was her father. But it's not. Yeah. They're romantically involved. Yeah. Even though it's the most platonic romantic relationship <laughs> I think I've seen. Carl comes bearing gifts for Maria to impress her from countries that they have invaded. So he's pulling out all the stops. He's got champagne, he's got caviar, he's got cheese. 
Um, Meanwhile, Frank is pulling shenanigans to throw off Carl, which I thought was very interesting because he's not, it's kind of mirroring the other uh, invisible men where they really have fun with people while they're, while they're invisible, but they're going crazy and he's not, but he is somewhat. I mean, we do find out the side effects later on, but this is never really brought up. But for someone who is on official government business and is supposed to be spying, he's a horrible spy. Yeah, he's messing with them just for fun. I mean, obviously, it's to entertain us, the audience. But he does blame it on him not having anything to eat. And he drank some champagne. So he got too tipsy. He had a sip of champagne. And then he ate a drumstick. (laughs) Ugh, anyhow. Yeah. What's funny about this Carl guy also, he's uh, he's so awful. He's bragging about knowing the Fuhrer. Yeah. That he has personal contact with Hitler. and Carl is not a good person at all. Like at no point in this movie will we ever feel anything other than unsavory thoughts for Carl. Yeah. He's throwing off Carl. There's a little trick that he pulls where Maria is smoking a cigarette and Carl goes to light her cigarette, but instead... Frank does lights another lighter next to her. So he so then Carl thinks it's like a trick lighter and then gets really obsessed with this lighter. Frank also pops the champagne and he's just like he just should be listening. But instead, he's just being weird and kind of also messing up any of these blatantly romantic advancements that Carl is making yeah. towards Maria. Well, that's his, yeah, that's his reason for doing it mostly because instantly he has fallen in love with Maria mm-hmm. and he doesn't want him to put the moves on her. Yeah. Um, we also find out that Frank has a bodyguard that he wants to station with Maria, which is this big hulking German man that he wants with her. And we also get the scene where Frank steals chicken and eats chicken. Yeah, then we uh, get a chicken on a string. Yeah, chi- I did really like that because it's just a piece of chicken floating through a room. <laughs> <laughs> That's strange. I was sure you had put some chicken on my plate. Maybe you have eaten it already. Oh, have I? <laughs> I really mustn't eat so fast. Carl has a bodyguard that he does not want to be bothered under any circumstances, which I thought this was just going to turn a little bit more violent, but it's just more messing around with Carl. He reveals that Hitler wants to attack the U.S. and says that there is a date. He's ordered an attack upon the United States. How can we attack the United States? 4,000 miles away. The theater, no place is too far away, not even the United States. Prior to this, he's kind of trying to say some lovey-dovey things he's saying some of that but then he's also throwing in some work stuff essentially Mm -hmm. and maria's trying to get information out of him but i think she's trying to be too blatant about it so she makes an offhand comment of let's not talk about work right now but now there's information that she does want to hear and he knows that she does want to hear it because she's all of a sudden interested and he says let's not talk about work right now and won't give her the date that she wants yeah so he just wants to be flirty with her still and he says maria you set my blood afire he's like oh gosh she really lays it on thick wants her to forget about politics and whatever else as he's talking to her and telling her these sweet nothings, he gets distracted by the lighter. And um, he goes back over to to try to figure out how it works. Maria flatters and flirts with him to kind of distract him, to get him to stop obsessing over this. And we find out also from Carl from here that she was trained by the Gestapo for risky work, intelligence, uh, work, and she knows how to fly. So she is a highly trained and skilled um person i don't know Uh what i would she's not a soldier or an officer or anything but she has all of this maybe an agent thank you (laughs) (laughs) um and he would never have allowed that and we find out that i think his name is conrad i forget what his last name is Stouffer or something. Yeah, Stouffer. He says, I don't know how he allowed that to happen. So again, it's still not 100% clear what their relationship is with Conrad. Because I was like, oh, is that like her dad or something? Because that seems like a dad thing to be like, my daughter's going to be just as Nazi-ish as I am. So So he's proclaiming his love for her. And uh, there's also like a little bucket of wine that's been set or an ice bucket because their champagne was getting warm, whatever. It's sitting there and it goes flying at him or falls over or something like that. Yeah. Carl tries to kiss Helen and Frank then flips the table or I'm sorry, I keep calling her Helen. Her name is Maria. Maria. I don't know why (laughs) I want to call her Helen. 
because uh, we just watched it like he did last summer. <laughs> I guess so. And then the movie before that, there was also... So the two movies before this were Helen's. <laughs> what was the one before that? Was Candyman. Her name was Helen. Oh, uh, was it? Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, flips the table up on Carl and Maria laughs. Carl gets so mad at her because he's embarrassed. He's covered in food. And so he has the guard put her under house arrest and he very upsetly leaves. Yeah, he's so angry and he says the worst things. This is an insult to the entire Nazi party. But Carl, I was only laughing at your drinks. <laughs> oh. Laughing, eh? I've had people shot for less. So yeah, he's angry at Maria now for laughing. She goes to her room and she yells at Frank that she ruined this opportunity. Frank says that Carl will be back. What makes you think that? Well... You're an irresistible woman. Guards come back in looking for a man that they can hear her talking to. And she says that she's talking to herself. And it turns into, she has a somewhat violent interaction with one of the men who goes to slap her. He goes to slap her, but he, he doesn't. Yeah, he's He gets a, stopped by another one. Yeah, he's about to slap her, but yeah, he gets stopped because this is Sir Cedric Hardwick's woman. Yes. And uh, that guy will get in trouble if she's hurt by him. Yeah, because they're looking around the room trying to find out what the source of this is. She's being cheeky, and uh, he was having none of that, I guess. Uh, they leave, and she ends up having a conversation with Frank and she says that she hates it there and that all the men treat women like dogs and uh, she has a moment with Frank I suppose and Frank ends up kissing her yeah this is a nice little effect too because he's invisible kissing her and we see her lips get pushed in Mm -hmm. you can faintly make out an object that is pushing her lips in it looks like almost (laughs) <laughs> they just used a pillow or something. Really? I took it out his, as his face. I mean, it was it supposed like to be his face. His, maybe it was, but it just, it looked too rounded to me. So she's now enamored and wants to see Frank. He puts on her robe and then puts on her cold cream lotion to make himself visible so she can see his features. And she's very excited about how tall he is and yeah. how handsome he is. And I guess he put cold cream all over his teeth because we could see teeth now. We can see his teeth. He puts on some glasses and he ties a towel around his head. How do you like your invisible man with a cold cream face? He says that he's very, very tired and he ends up falling asleep on a little loungy couch thing. She asks him not to, but he still does it anyway. And she still finds him charming. Carl goes back to the office and here we see Conrad Stouffer. And so is uh, Peter Lorre. They read the report on the missing parachutist and Conrad notices that Carl's uniform is dirty from dinner. Conrad asks him why, and is all of a sudden interested in anything that Carl has to say. So Carl ends up telling him about all these weird little mishaps that happened at dinner. And so now they have this report of this person disappearing, and now we have Carl going through all of this weird stuff at dinner. Yeah, so because all these weird things are happening, Conrad believes perhaps the Invisible Man was with them. Yes, so... Carl returns with Conrad to Maria's. She hears them and tries to wake up Frank, but she just can't. So she starts to remove the cold cream and disrobes him. Conrad and Carl go to her room and Conrad looks around discreetly for Frank. While this is happening, um, he's also having a conversation with the two of them and lets Carl know that he knows that Carl has intentions towards Maria and calls him an enemy of the party and basically calls out that Carl is only looking in his own best interest yeah. um, and is a disgrace to the Nazi party. You're an enemy of the party, Heiser! While Conrad was away in America to see Frank Raymond to get the invisibility drug, uh, this whole time Carl has been not only fooling around with Maria, or trying to fool around with Maria, but he's also trying to get Conrad's job. Yep. You know, having little meetings with Hitler and trying to be the number one guy over Conrad. So, yeah, he puts him under arrest. Um, he has the guards take him away. So we find out that, yeah... It, Conrad and Maria are together, but there's he says there's no room for sentiment. So he's just like 
He doesn't really care about her, I guess. He's just not attached to her, but he's not gonna let her go. Like that's still whoever she is to him. So, mm-hmm. and earlier this plays into Helen talking about the men treating women like dogs and not really having appreciation. And she's gotten all this affection already from Frank that it seems yeah. like she does not get from Conrad. Well, yeah, I mean, Conrad and Carl, they both sort of just use her as property. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. I like how this plays out where he goes to the bed and starts kind of poking around, seeing if Frank is laying on the bed yeah. um, and if he's sleeping there. And then there's a part where he goes to the actual little couch that we had seen Frank on earlier and he goes to sit down. And while he does that, Maria lets on and gets really she tenses up seeing him do that because that's where she last left him conrad says that he's going back to the office and then he loudly exclaims that he's going back to receive a file of secret orders about uh the attack on the united states yeah it's (laughs) it's so funny how he's planning this trap because it's so obvious he's just looking over his shoulder I'm going back to the office <laughs> to get a secret <laughs> file. <laughs> yep. He leaves and Maria searches for Frank, but she can't find him. Turns out that Frank has also gone to the office. This was very, I mean, it's very obvious. Frank is just being stupid because he walks through the door and I think he closes the door and there are guards. There are like four guards literally at that door and yeah. so they just lock the door yeah yeah he was he's not too careful it's the whole thing's dumb but yeah they, they lock him inside yeah they lock him inside and he thinks he's being a sneaky sneak so he looks around the office starts pulling drawers open looking through papers and we see conrad sneak in through a side door as frank has pulled this book out of a drawer conrad informs frank that this is a trap and that he's trapped in the office yeah, and that, and, that book was planted there. Yeah. What's funny is when Conrad confronts him, he starts looking for an exit, but there's nowhere to go. So mm-hmm. he opens up the uh, the window and there's a balcony, but it's however many stories up. Four. Four stories up. And Conrad has a great line where he tells him that he can't jump because... You might break every invisible bone in that poor invisible body. He asks Frank for the formula, and Frank says that he doesn't know the formula. Oh, also while they're having... So they're going back and forth with this, and Conrad has requested that he sit in this chair, and he rocks the chair. And at one point, our good friend Frank says that he's cold, and there's a little little space heater that he's able to turn on so now we got this heater going that happens to be next to a trash can that happens to be next to this rocking chair or it's actually a chair that just rocks a little bit so conrad wants this chair to keep rocking that way he knows that frank isn't trying to sneak up on him well eventually frank is able to throw the heater into this trash can and he's able to start a fire so conrad lets the guards in meanwhile frank makes a phone call to the fire department and says there's a fire here yeah. um so now the fire department is coming and i thought this was very very clever and i like how this played out again another bit of a benny hill type of situation <laughs> where guard after guard comes in and tries to attack the invisible man yeah there's one guard that he jumps over the desk i guess to grab the invisible man and he just kind of like a penguin like he belly slides across yeah he just flies out of frame and it's like What happened to him? Why did he do that? (laughs) (laughs) So the fire department shows up and um, hoists up a ladder to the fourth floor. They come in. He's able to shimmy down the ladder. So he's able to get out that way as these men are fighting fires and the guards are actively looking for him in the room. Yeah, he gets out down the ladder and other people are coming up and he's... So they know something's there because he's also carrying the book that he found. Yes, he did. He took that book, which this book has German and Japanese agents who are their names that are in the U.S. Yeah, it's a book that has all the agents. What is weird to me is they set this trap. Why wouldn't they put a fake book in there? I know that I did find that very interesting. (laughs) So, yeah, they should have just had some sort of mock book that that he could take and think he got away with it. It could have literally been any book. Yeah. Moby Um, Dick. Right, but 
No, they didn't do that for some reason. So he has the actual book with all the agents. Yeah. He goes back to Arthur's and gives the book to him so he can go radio the info to the British who can let the U.S. know. He calls Maria to find out if she's still interested in him. And she says yes and will go to him. So now we have Ikido. He arrives at the office and uh, he finds Conrad looking for the book. And then I put down, he's Japanese? (laughs) (laughs) And um, I am Japanese. (laughs) He's um, asking for the book because it's in his interest that the book still be around because that needs to go back to the Japanese government. Yeah, he he supplied them with the book. He's responsible for it. And if it got stolen, he's in as much trouble as Conrad is. Yep, and Conrad plays that the book is still around. So, of course, Ikido calls his bluff and says he would like to see it. It's valuable and he really needs to see that book. Conrad is informed at this point of the call that is made to Maria. When Peter Laurie and Sir Cedric Hardwick are having the confrontation over this book, they are now sort of becoming enemies with each other. Yes. Where Conrad sort of threatens Peter Laurie. He says to him, do what you like, Ikido. You're still in Germany. And then Peter Laurie has a great line where he says, I've never been more aware of it. Yeah, Conrad definitely lets it known that he's in this now for his own best interest and Germany's best interest and he doesn't care about Japan. Yeah. It totally breaks this allyship. What do you call it? Camaraderie. No, it's anywhere. They're allies. Yeah. And now that's broken. Yeah. So now we're with Carl and Carl's in a cell. Frank goes to visit him and taunts him. You're going to die, Heiser. You're going to pay for just one of the crimes you've committed in the name of your party. Carl freaks out and calls for a guard, saying that there's someone in his cell. And that's when Frank's able to kind of sneak into the cell. Or not kind of, he sneaks into the cell. Yeah. It's funny, when we first meet him, they force Carl to eat some really bad food. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guards oh, do. Oh, gosh, yeah. Because these guards, they know Carl. And Carl, he's just such a pompous little guy trying to be at the top so you know he gets all the lobster all the great foods the caviar yeah. that he's been eating this whole he's time he's been indulging yeah and now he is in this cell so they give him the slop that they have to eat on their rations yep, and they laugh at him yeah pig slop just the dish for this pig he's been stuffing himself with caviar long enough Frank is there to remind him that he is a horrible person and that he'll be dead soon. Pretty much manipulates him into telling him about the attack on the U.S. And Frank wants the date. But Carl won't tell him unless he can get him out. So our good friend Frank agrees to get him out of his cell Mm -hmm. for this information. Meanwhile, guards have arrived to the prison for Carl because they are there to kill Carl. And Carl hears them and says that they're there to kill him. He tells him that the bombing is supposed to start tonight. Yeah, Uh, the the big secret attack is going to be starting tonight, and it's a bunch of German planes flying to New York to bomb New York. When the guards come in to shoot Carl, Frank knocks them out, and they end up stealing their uniforms and walk out of the prison. Yeah, (laughs) do you remember the line that... Frank has about the Nazis. Mm-mm. It's another great line. He says, You Nazis. I pity the devil when you boys start arriving in bunches. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say that Carl, just to reinforce in case you're an, at all feeling like anything about Carl, while Frank knocked out the guards, Carl took their guns and killed them in their cell. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I was thinking back on that. So again, they took the clothes of, of these guards. And you know what? I don't think he killed them, actually, because I think those are the guards that may have come back later. Because basically... No, he killed those guards. He shot them. We no, heard. No, I know we heard, but I, I, I don't know for sure. But remember those guards came to kill Carl. So he could have just shot two shots to make the others think that Carl was dead. True. 
But we thought uh, that... Are they he, the same guard? All these people look the same. That's the thing. I can't remember if they are the same guards that show up later. They, so he, he may have killed them. He may very well have, which these, would be very grisly. These guards look exactly like the guards that were like, eat the slop, who yeah. look exactly like the guards who jumped over the tables, who look exactly like the guards who showed up at Maria's. <laughs> so I don't know... All those but Nazis look the same, I guess. I think, isn't there, like, body language from Frank? Because Frank is outside of the cell. Carl yeah. is inside the cell. I don't know. Okay. Well, he shoots. But, you know, the Invisible Man in this Nazi outfit, it's kind of a, a neat look for him. Like, it's it's He scary. looks like that one guy from Hellboy. Yeah, yeah, looks like Cronin. Anywho, so they drive to Arthur's. We find Arthur being interrogated about the phone call that was made from his store mm-hmm. as well as the shortwave radio that they found in his chimney. So Arthur is being interrogated, but he's very much playing like he doesn't know what they're talking about. And he says that he rents out the room upstairs so that shortwave radio that they found in the chimney could be from anyone. Mm-hmm. Carl ends up letting Frank know that the um, Gestapo is watching the shop. Frank decides he's going to go in. Again, Frank is not good at being invisible because he still just opens doors, which if the shop is being watched, he even says it like he's like, "Okay, I'll take care of this. And then he just walks through the front door. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess earlier Conrad was interrogating Arnold in another location, I guess. Yes. They took him away from the shop. We know that he's going to the shop and then we get a cut of him being interrogated. Yeah. So, yeah, they pull up on the shop and they go past another car, which has Nazis sitting in the car watching mm-hmm. it, as you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so Carl is now sitting in the car as Frank goes in. And inside he finds Maria. He tells her that she's a double crosser. Like all of a sudden... Yeah, double crosser, eh? <laughs> and it turns out that there is a trap that has been waiting for him here. And this is an awful trap. It's set up by Aikido and his men. And it is a fishnet with a bunch of hooks in it. Yeah. So as soon as he goes to pull it off, these hooks are just hooking themselves into his skin. Oh, what's this? It's full of hooks. Oh, they're tearing into me. Oh, Frank! Look at this. So many hooks in the last three movies. <laughs> yeah. They're able to capture Frank and they take him and Maria out of the store, but they take them out in caskets. Mm-hmm. So Carl, who's waiting in the car, as well as the Gestapo, see all of a sudden these men that no one knew were in the store mm-hmm. come out with caskets. Carl ends up going to investigate the shop meanwhile i believe the gestapo takes off after that car right they leave so now carl goes inside yeah and he goes to look for frank and calls for him and does not find him there so at this point he thinks that frank has just left him in some way like he feels abandoned Mm -hmm. so now we're back with arthur who's with conrad and uh while we didn't see any torture we do find that the that Conrad would like Arthur to sign a document saying that he was treated fairly and in good care. And we find out that, that he wasn't, that they actually broke all of his fingers. Yeah, he says he can't sign it because all of his fingers are broken. I can't sign it. You won't? I can't. You've broken my fingers. This scene... Even the way it's shot seems so realistic. I'm sure it was based off of real stories of uh, people being tortured by the Nazis. Yeah. Carl calls Conrad at this point, and Conrad has also sent men to go find Carl and says to kill him on sight. So Conrad's over it. But um, Carl is there to sell out Frank, and he wants to be reinstated and pretty much wants to deliver Frank to Conrad and tells him to meet him at the Japanese embassy. Yep. So we're now at the Japanese embassy and they are removing the netting and the hooks from Frank. Um, They lost a lot of blood. (laughs) Oh, when the Nazis arrive. (laughs) (laughs) So we get a little bit of this where we're just kind of seeing the Japanese interact with Frank, Frank still has Maria, is thinking about her in some way, and um, the Nazis then arrive. Frank pretends to faint, which causes a shuff- uh, like a scuffle between everyone, and everyone just starts 
fighting each other. The Durbans show up and, you know, there's a big fight and the great wolf band music starts playing. Mm. So there's this big fight. And while that fight is going on, Frank can make his getaway. Yep. He grabs Maria. It's very funny because I believe at one point he just like throws her over his shoulder. And so it's funny because the way that they shot this, it's just a floating woman. Yeah. So Carl is hiding. Everyone is fighting. Frank and Maria are escaping. Conrad and Nikito end up getting into a fight. Yeah, and it's great. They confront each other, and then I guess Conrad makes a move, and then Akito, he barely moves, but he's able to flip him over his shoulder using these yeah. great karate skills <laughs> that he has, he has uh, been taught his whole he's life, I'm sure. He's a skilled fighter. Yeah. He does not trust Conrad, and he ends up stabbing Conrad with what looks to me like a letter opener. Yeah, probably. And it's pretty, like, grisly the way that they... I mean, you don't see him stabbing him, but you see it from... You only see Ikido stabbing downwards. Yeah. And you hear it. I'm going to make an honorable man even out of you. Carl is getting some sort of weird joy. He's... I mean, Conrad's dead, right? So now he's like awesome like this only works out in his favor now he is the top ranking official he's the number two to hitler now because conrad is gone yep now i am his successor i am the power so he ends up going to the airport he um goes back outside there's some officers there and he goes to the airport meanwhile akito everything is pretty much lost for him the invisible man is gone they don't have this book and he's not fulfilled his duties to his government and to his country yeah he says the duties have not been fulfilled that he said that conrad has failed and he himself has failed Mm -hmm. and basically that they have to die for that yeah he kind of gave up early. He could have done more. Oh, yeah. I totally think he gave up way early. I don't know why he didn't. I thought he was going to stab, 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 stab Conrad and then be like, all right, let's go to the airport. Yeah. Um, but no, instead he was like, he's going to like, oh, I don't want to bother. Stab, stab, stab myself. Yeah. So he uh, he changes into a kimono and he has some sort of ceremony where he uh, ends up stabbing himself. Yes. So he kills himself. Um, And we see this in shadow. And now we're back with Frank and Maria. And they are going to the airport. They are followed by Carl, who is spotted by guards who were earlier sent to go kill Carl. Yeah. So this is the second set of guards who were sent to go kill Carl. I don't think it's the same set of guards that were sent to go kill Carl earlier. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm saying if I sent you to kill someone and you didn't kill them, I wouldn't send you again to go kill them. (laughs) Well, unless they figured it out themselves, they awoke. But they had clothes still, so it couldn't have been them. No, it was literally the people that that Conrad was like, (laughs) go kill Carl. And they were like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, before they get to the airport, there's some great moments of uh, car chases yeah lots of cars speeding through the area yep and then um we do get we get a little bit of what frank's plan wants to be he he wants maria to fly them out because he can't fly yeah as they get to the actual airfield there is uh, this giant gas tanker that they end up hitting and it flips over and it explodes so now there's like a little barrier where people can't get past it because it's everything's on fire yep so it gives them a little bit of time. Frank throws her into an airplane. <laughs> yeah, they find a plane and again, he's carrying her. So it looks like she's floating through the air. <laughs> and they take off. There's now this all this chaos and commotion on the ground. Carl, though, is able to order the soldiers that are on the ground to shoot the plane that is currently taking off. So as they're flying, Frank asks Maria to kind of circle back and he sees all of the planes that are supposed to go bomb New York. So he ends up deploying the bombs that are currently on the plane that they're on to blow up these planes he says that he knows that he can't stop this from happening but he can slow them down yeah there's a lot of bombs on this plane and yeah there's some great explosions yeah they did really good here and these are all models i assume yeah probably and they're flying and he says i feel kind of high yeah he's getting (laughs) all weird again um and it's definitely a side effect of the of this drug oh i feel kind of high and they need to call 
the British. Because if they get there, they're going to be shot because they're in a German plane. Right. They're going to be shot down. Right. So why does he wait so long? I don't know. Yeah, Maria. He doesn't trust Maria. Yeah, Maria said. Yeah, Maria said she wanted to do the call. So, but he wouldn't let her do it, and then he just like passes out. Yeah. So as they're being shot at at this point, from by the Nazis, are trying to shoot them down, and they're able to hide in some clouds. She does tell him before he passes out to wear to put on a parachute, so they are prepared to jump out of this plane. Back on the ground, Carl, the guards that were sent earlier to kill him, arrive, and they just kill Carl on sight. So our good friend Carl, <laughs> not our good friend, um, he's now dead. So all of the major villains in this movie are dead at this point. Yeah, and he is, I don't know if it's a shocking death, but it's just, it's not unexpected, but the way it's done is unexpected with just this like giant machine gun that just riddles him with bullets. It's insanely violent. <laughs> Because it's not, because I think everyone else has had like just like a bang bang gun, and then this guy just shows up with a machine gun and kills this man. Frank doesn't trust Maria and won't let her use the radio, and he is now asleep. They've been spotted and they're getting shot at by the British. Um, She tells Frank to let her call, but he just like won't wake up. So I'm not too sure why she doesn't like call. Because, I mean, if you're not responding, I'm just going to take this. I was thinking that, too. But maybe she's worried they wouldn't believe her because she has a German accent. Possibly. That could be it. I'm sure they told us, but this movie. Um, But, you know, sometimes you got to pick and choose what you're going (laughs) to write down. So they have the parachuting gear on and she throws him out of the plane and she jumps out also as the plane crashes. Yeah, it's pretty heroic what she does. Uh, able to save not only herself but him as well yep they are found by british soldiers in the countryside and we get a little bit of a comedic something or other here and remember what he says no look at the blighter he has no head now we're with frank and he's woken up in the hospital maria is introduced to him by one of the british as an agent and they banter with each other because now everything's okay. She's fine. Uh, for some reason, though, I didn't understand this. So he arrived at the hospital and they were like, let's put some cold cream on this man. So we could see him. Maybe, well, they had to do surgery on him or oh, something. So they had to see what they were working on. Did they have to do surgery? He wasn't hurt. He was just asleep. No, but that's that's my thinking. Yeah, well, whatever. So <laughs> maybe we get- <laughs> I, I wouldn't doubt he broke his leg in that fall. So oh, because he landed like a little <laughs> sack of potatoes. Yeah. So he has cold cream and he says that it itches his nose. It's just itching. It's too much. So um, he asks Maria to, you know, remove some of the stuff. So she goes to wipe it off. And our good friend Frank is now visible. She does a very, very thorough job of just wiping off this thick, ridiculous cold cream. Yeah, there he is looking normal now. And she wolf whistles at him. Oh, she gives a great wolf whistle. Boy, if I was wolf whistled by Alona Massey, boy, would that be great. (laughs) They have a little bit more banter and then they kiss and it's the end of The Invisible Agent. The Invisible Agent. What'd you think? Oh, I thought it was good. It was fun. It was a very fun movie. Yeah, I said earlier that I don't know this movie very well. I've only seen it maybe once or twice, but I really, really enjoyed it. I gotta say... I thought The Invisible Man Returns was my favorite Invisible Man sequel, but I think this is my favorite Invisible Man sequel. Really? Yeah, I really, I, it's a really fun movie. I, it is very fun. I, I really like it, and I like the actors. I love that Peter Lorre is in it. Mm-hmm. I love Alona Massey and mm-hmm. Sir Cedric Hardwick. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to talk a little bit about the movie? Sure. I don't have too much information, but let's talk. Okay. The Invisible Agent from 1942, Universal Pictures. When this movie was originally announced, it had a different title. What do you think it was called? The Invisible Soldier. Close. The Invisible Officer? The Invisible Spy. Oh. (laughs) You would have gotten there eventually. Eventually, I guess. I like The Invisible Agent better. So this is the first, I guess, maybe only universal monster movie to be specifically about World War II. Oh, really? 
others have might have you know sort of undertones of World War II things going on. But mm-hmm. to be specific about real World War II issues, this is the only one that's done that. So this this movie was really a war propaganda movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, for sure. So they did it for that. It doesn't really fit into the continuity of the other Universal monster movies because. This is in the same world as uh, the original Invisible Man and Frank Griffin and all that. And then if you want to count Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, where the Invisible Man shows up also, that means the Wolfman, Frankenstein, and all these characters are also in this world. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing going on in their European villages involving World War II during this time. Oh, yeah. So there's there's a whole, I don't know, there's this whole backstory that you can kind of put together that doesn't work for this movie when comparing it to the others, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's a movie all of its own. Yeah. So it was originally going to be written by Frank Lloyd and Jack Skirball, who wrote Alfred Hitchcock's Saboteur. Okay. They were changed when a new producer came on, and the two producers of this movie were Frank Lloyd and George Wagner. Frank Lloyd, he was a big-time director and producer, and he had previously won two Oscars for directing Cavalcade and The Divine Lady. Okay. Two movies I had not seen, but they won. But he won for uh, in the early 30s. George Wagner, he was the associate producer of this movie, and he directed The Wolfman. So George Wagner became the big universal guy at this point because of the Wolfman. Mm -hmm. And I assume it was George Wagner who brought on the new writer, who was Kurt Seerbach, who wrote The Wolfman. Yeah, yeah. That name is familiar. Yeah. Uh, Kurt Seerbach, he also wrote The Invisible Man Returns and The Invisible Woman. So this is his third Invisible movie. Mm -hmm. It really struck home for this movie for him, I would imagine, because he escaped from Germany. He was a German Jew and escaped when he saw the Nazis rising to power and came to Hollywood. Oh, wow. So a lot of his movies had, as I said, undertones of World War II and Nazis and all that. But this one was really when he got to write about it. I'm guessing he would have liked to write something more serious about it. But, you know, this had to be a fun kids movie at the same time. Is this a kids movie? Well, you know. It's pretty violent. Yeah, but yeah, so he wrote the movie. It was directed by Edwin L. Martin. I don't know who he is. No, <laughs> I didn't see any other monster movies in his credits. Okay. It was filmed from April 22nd, 1942 to late May 1942 with a budget of $322,291. All right. So this was filmed five months after Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the different studios were doing war propaganda films, and I think Universal was one of the last to kind of get into doing those, mm-hmm. but uh, they did it here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about our cast. We have John Hall as Frank Raymond. He was also famous for playing Raymar of the Jungle, which was a popular TV series in the 50s. Okay. It's kind of like a, a, a doctor in Africa. Oh, okay. He will return in The Invisible Man's Revenge, which is the next Invisible Man movie, where he will again play The Invisible Man, but not the same character. What? <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. I can't. Like, oh, this just, is just wait. So just wait. <laughs> An interesting little bit of trivia about John Hall is he used to live in Los Feliz, and his house later became Forrest J. Ackerman's house, The oh, Ackermansion. Really? Yeah. Alona Massey plays Maria Sorensen. Mm-hmm. We also know her, I know her best, from Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which we will cover in the next few episodes. Okay. In that movie, she plays Elsa. Oh. Later in life, they interviewed her about this movie, and she said that she disliked the film so much that she could scarcely remember what it was about. Oh, wow. And she said she couldn't even remember what her role really was in this film. I mean, maybe that's true. She didn't like the movie, but I actually think she did a great job of this movie and she had a lot to do, especially when comparing it to other uh, screen queens of uh, universal horror movies. 100%. She was a more fleshed out character. Yeah. A woman character. Yeah. She was basically part of the action. She was like the, uh, the Ralph Bellamy of Ghost of Frankenstein, you know, like she was, she wasn't just screaming and being taken care of. She was doing things to... To help push everything forward. The last movie that we saw was The Mummy's Tomb. 
Uh huh. Because yeah, because that woman from that movie. Yeah, she didn't do much. Yeah, she didn't do anything. Like she was. This one had so much to do. Yeah. We have Peter Lorre as Paranaquito. <laughs> Again, he's one of the most iconic horror personalities of all time. Everyone imitated him. Uh, he was in cartoons <laughs> being imitated. Yeah. Uh, more recently, uh, remember they imitated him in Corpse Bride, one of the oh, characters? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The little um, worm. Yeah, the little worm. I wish he was in more Universal movies. This was his only Universal monster movie that he did. Boo. But he did a lot of big things around this time. In fact, he was in the movie Casablanca, which is a lot of people consider the best movie ever made. Mm -hmm. He almost wasn't able to do that movie because of his schedule of The Invisible Agent. Wow. Because they both came out the same year. Uh, We also know him from the movie M, Arsenic and Old Lace, which I love, The Maltese Falcon, and another great horror movie directed by Carl Freund called Mad Love. Great movie. Oh, not the one with um, Drew Barrymore and Chris O'Donnell? Yeah, that, I don't know that one. <laughs> yeah. It's very 90s. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to mention about his character being Japanese. You know, at some point during the war, Hollywood made it so studios would be sure not to make Japanese characters too villainous. This character that he plays in this movie is is more serious and you almost have respect for him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because he uh, is doing this for his own country and and you see how much what he's doing is is meaning to him. You, you really get an in-depth look at this character as opposed to the Nazis who were kind of bumbling fools. Oh, you gotcha. And the reason that Hollywood directed studios to not make too much fun of the Japanese is because they were worried that the Japanese would see these movies and take it out on American prisoners. So there is always a fear of not portraying them as too goofy or making fun of them too much. Oh, wow. Okay. Sir Cedric Hardwick plays Conrad Stauffer. He is also in The Invisible Man Returns, remember, as Richard Cobb. Yeah. <laughs> Ghost of Frankenstein, we saw him in, and again, he also played Frollo in the 1939 version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh. Carl Heiser is played by J. Edward Bromberg. I don't know too much about him, but he was in some other Universal movies, uh, ones that we haven't watched together yet. Mm-hmm. He was in Pillow of Death with Lon Chaney Jr. That was one of the Inner Sanctum movies. He is also in the 1943 version of The Phantom of the Opera. And probably what I know him best from is Son of Dracula with Lon Chaney Jr. as well. Oh. Albert Basserman plays Arnold Schmidt. Don't know anything about him. Basserman. That's a good name. Or Basserman. Basserman. <laughs> Either way, it's a good name. A couple of little trivia things I want to mention. Do you remember there's an opening scene of this movie with a newspaper boy? Yes. So he is uh, mentioning Oregon State playing Duke in the Rose Bowl. Say the mission! Oregon State invites Duke to Rose Bowl! Uh, the reason this was in the movie is because that was a very memorable Rose Bowl where they actually didn't play in Pasadena. They played at Duke University. And it was all in the headlines, you know, back then because it was before Pearl Harbor, but they moved them to play outside of California because they were worried that the Japanese would attack the Rose Bowl. Oh. So they put that in there to give audiences an idea that what we are currently seeing is taking place before Pearl Harbor. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. And the men comment on it. Yeah. There was a scene that apparently was filmed but cut. It was a scene where John Hall, the Invisible Man, was taking a shower Mm -hmm. and there were water droplets that would be seen on him. And apparently it was a really great effect. And John P. Fulton, who did the special effects, was really upset that it had to get cut because he really liked that effect that they pulled off. And the reason it was cut is because the door was open when he was taking a shower and Alona Massey was in the other room and censors would not allow a naked man to be with a woman like that even though he's naked when he's invisible in other scenes but i guess because he was in the shower and she was still in the same shot Mm -hmm. basically they thought that was too much so they made them cut it wow okay the movie was released on july 31st 1942 
It was the most successful Invisible Man sequel and one of the most successful films of 1942 period for oh, Universal. Wow. I told you it had a budget of $322,000. It ended up making $1,041,500. Holy crap. Yeah, so it made a lot of money. How many years was it in the theater? <laughs> And uh, it went on to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Special Effects uh, for John P. Fulton and Bernard B. Brown. It did not win, but it's nice that they got a nomination. Next, we will see The Invisible Man in The Invisible Man's Revenge. After that, he will have a slight cameo in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And then we will see Abbott and Costello Meet The Invisible Man. And that's it? That's the end of The Invisible series? That's it. And that is the story of The Invisible Agent. Well, thank you. Well, why don't you tell everyone how they can find us? You can find us at podsandmonsters.com. You can also find us on Instagram at podsandmonsterspodcast. And on Facebook and Twitter, you can find us at podsandmonsters. If you want to slide into those DMs, please feel free. They're open all the time. Or you can email us at podsandmonsters at gmail.com. We have updated our watch list to the end of 2020. And uh, I think that's about it. (laughs) Oh, please, if you have any time and have been enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For Pods and Monsters, my name is Robert. My name is Anthea. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. See you later. As the rising sun never sets, so her servants never sleep. Good night.